Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson and in this episode I've got an interview with Catherine Albany Ward. Now Catherine is uh, the person that is running Colorblind Awareness, um, colorblindawareness.org, the website there, and she has um, done an incredible job over the last uh, nine or ten years or so of raising awareness of the challenges of colorblindness, and it's a really great um, conversation with her that we get a chance to talk about how colorblindness affects so many people, and it, it is mostly men as we talk about but it's something like one in 12 men and boys, up to one in 200 women, and overall about 300 million people across the world. It is an incredible number. And um, it kind of can have an effect in all sorts of different areas. Um, it can affect school and exam performance. It certainly has a big impact on occupations and careers. There's a potential risk to health um, as well. And even what would seem like apparently straightforward pleasures like watching sport, watching football, playing football, playing cricket, playing other sports can be really compromised by colour vision. And she's really been taking the fight to organisations like the FA, to the BBC, to make sure that they take into consideration colour blindness um, and so that everybody can access access resources and um, everything's fully inclusive. She's done incredible work there. The FA have been really fantastic and we talk about this quite a lot in the podcast. Catherine was involved in writing a big long document and actually they've been really responsive by the sounds of things, the FA. There's a long way to go but um, we talked through all those issues um, and I was really delighted to have that conversation with her. It was back in episode 35 that I talked about my own experiences and it was really nice to have that conversation with Catherine and to go through all the different areas and tap into her experience and knowledge with speaking to so many people who are suffering from colour blindness. So a little bit about an episode that's coming up in the future. Um, I have been speaking to John Barry this week and John Barry is a very well-known academic um, and he's very busy at the moment running, uh, getting organised to run the Male Psychology Conference. And we were going to, we're just planning to speak in the next few weeks to have a conversation about all sorts of issues related to men's mental health. I did offer to put out a little plug for the Male Psychology Conference that's taking place at UCL in London on the 21st and 22nd of June. Uh, you can find all the details at the Male Psychology website. Um, and I think the address for that is malepsychology.org.uk. Go down there and check out the conference. Uh, I understand that the theme of the days of the two days is all about the impact of family life on men's mental health. Uh, they're covering issues like fatherhood, domestic violence, uh, divorce, um, and they're looking at new methods for improving men's mental health, things like talking therapy, exercise, help-seeking. So the kind of issues that we've talked about in the past when it's come to men and boys, mental health, uh, and uh, when I had a chat to John Adams from the Dad Blog UK, um, and when I've chatted to Judy Chu as well about sort of boys and men's adolescent um uh, boys adolescent development and how that affects us as well um, apparently there's going to be free workshops running throughout the two days it's now the sixth year of the conference and john says there's always a really great friendly buzz i'd love to have got along myself but i can't make it um, but he was at pains to point out that anyone interested in men's mental health is very welcome you don't need to be a psychologist anyone can buy a ticket uh, so get along and enjoy those fantastic two days Thank you for all your support. I'm very grateful for it all. Uh, perhaps the best way you can support the podcast, if you're getting something out of it, is to sign up for the newsletter. That's at blokeology.io forward slash journal. 
But do, if you can, take a moment to recommend it to a mate, recommend it to someone else you think might get benefit. And that is all I can ask. Thank you very much. Right. So let's get back to the interview with Catherine Albany Ward. So the first thing I asked Catherine was how on earth she got into this area and how she developed this interest and what led her into being an advocate for colour blindness. As with most things, um, when people get on my high horse, it tends to be because of their child. Um, and I found out by complete fluke that my son was colourblind when he was seven and I had no idea and I was really shocked um, when I realised what he was seeing, potentially or not seeing. Um, and I went to his school to talk to them about it and they weren't very good and I was pretty disappointed with them. Um, so I went off to find out some more information and discovered there wasn't any. Um, so that basically started me off. I ended up setting up a website, basically just partly putting all the information that I wanted in one place as a parent uh, initially. Um, and it's grown from there. Yeah. So this was all sort of back in 2010 or so. I think that's, you know, I think it says on the uh, the website that the, that's been a community interest company since about then. But it might have been a little bit before that that you first discovered your son was having difficulties. Yes. Yeah. Because he's 17 now. Right. And he was seven at the time so yeah it's probably yeah took me a while to actually get the company together and decide how I wanted to structure it so that it would be effective yeah. going forward to suit sort of what I wanted from it and um so if, if I should ask what kind of problems did you notice he was having at that time if you're all right talking about that as it's your son yeah no it's fine um well yeah he's not too happy <laughs> he's never <laughs> too happy about me putting his name forward so obviously I don't use his name but yeah. he um he was a sporty child and um, he was playing football with a lot of children who went to a school where they played sport every day. And um, we decided to move him to that school. We thought it would be beneficial to him. And he'd only been there a week. And bearing in mind in way, uh, we were a bit surprised when he said, oh, I don't like my new school. Um, because he was really looking forward to going. He'd been there a few times. And when I actually finally got to the bottom of what the problem was, it was because he didn't know who was in his team for games. And they had a reversible top for games. And uh, it was maroon and olive green. So I didn't think of those as red and green. I might have suddenly thought, oh, colour blindness. I didn't know colour blindness was in the family at that point, And I didn't realise that those were colours that he could he could mix up. Um, so it took a bit of questioning um, and him saying things like, well, yes, I know we've got a reversible top, but when we turned the tops over, I still don't know who's in my team. Um, something, something questioning what he was actually trying to say to me. And eventually the penny dropped that it might be colorblind. And uh, at that point in time, it was just possible to get simulations. You could um upload images onto us uh, this website where you could see a simulation of how things might look to somebody with color blindness and when i showed those to my son and he thought the images were exactly the same but to me they were wildly different i realized he must be colorblind but until then i wasn't sure that that's what the problem was yeah i mean did you go on to get him because i know the website mentions that he's got um deuteranopia um, did you go on to get him more formally tested after that, or have you just relied on those sort of tests and Ishihara and other bits and pieces? Um, I took him to the optician, and the optician said, oh, he might have a few problems with colours. I was like, a few problems? I can see what problems he's going to have. I know he's going to have a lot of problems. 
Um, and that was when I realised that generally opticians only use the basic Ishihara test, which is really good at diagnosing children or anyone uh, with colour blindness, but it's no good at telling you the, what type or severity of colour blindness somebody might have. So I did some research and found that there were various university departments that would do full testing. Um, and I took him to one of those and, and we went through the full gamut of tests to find out exactly what type of colour blindness he had. But most people don't know that. They don't know that they can do that for a start. And for a second, they don't realise that a diagnosis of red-green colour blindness can mean a whole range of different things. And uh, it's not the same condition for everybody. Yeah, well, we should definitely talk about that in a minute. So, I, I, I absolutely. Yeah. Most people think it's red green. Don't realise that there are well, there are probably there are four. You know, there are pretty much four conditions, if you four categories, if you like, within that. Um, I actually yeah. went. So I get my. I did an earlier episode on colour blindness where I just talked about my own experience. Um, I actually went to City University in London and got formally tested okay. back in 2010. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. um, and I'm protonopic, so. I have really abysmal, if non-existent, red cones, um, mm-hmm. I guess is how they would put it. And yeah. um, so that's going to be quite a different experience. And the interesting thing about chatting to somebody else about colorblindness is that what I have noticed is, though it's relatively common, is that actually it's relatively uncommon to have this exact... I have, I'm not sure if I've actually met another protonopic. They're probably... They're, they've all been deuteranopia or deuteranomalous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are lots on there. If you want to go on our Twitter feed, you'll yeah. find a lot there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just those sort of conversations. When we certainly, you come across people who say they're colorblind, and then they realise the experience isn't quite the same um, necessarily. So uh, we should talk a little bit about the different kinds of red green color blindness. Sure. So both of those types can vary from mild to severe. So my son's got severe green vision loss, and you've got severe red vision loss. Um, but other people might have very mild mild forms of either of those. So they are much more easily able to distinguish between colours than you will be. Um, But you will see things quite differently to my son, depending on what colour you're looking at. So I know that you will have generally have problems distinguishing between red and orange, uh, between uh, dark shades of brown, green and red, and you might confuse those with black. So protonopes very often can't read red against black, um, which is a big problem because quite a lot of information or instructions on the internet or on a phone or whatever shows red text on black or black text on red. Lots of websites use those combinations. So that's very difficult for you. But my son wouldn't have that same problem because red gives him a greater contrast to black than it gives you. Um, you would also probably have problems with confusing blue and purple. Yeah. And so, so will he. Um, he would, he'd be more likely to confuse similar shades of, uh, tone of reds and greens than you will. You probably more easily be able to see red than him because against green, because to you, red will be darker. You will mix up, um, deep pinks and mid blues and you'll mix up, um, bright green and bright yellow. He's less likely to do that, um, but he will mix up um, greys and pinks, which you're less likely to do. So there are, there are subtle differences, but there are also very similar um, issues that red being both types of colour blindness can experience in a similar way, just because 
the position where the eye picks up green light and the position where red light picks up on the light spectrum very close together and they overlap. So there's an overlapping yeah. issue in the between the two conditions as well. Uh, yeah. It's very difficult to explain to somebody who's colorblind what they're seeing differently to another person who's colorblind because <laughs> you've not seen the normal color version. I know. I think it's just a, it's one of those bizarre kind of, it becomes a slightly philosophical discussion often when you have this conversation with people about, you know, you can't ever be inside someone else's head and we're all very alone in that regard mm. and know what someone else is seeing. So that people start to wander off in that tangent. I, when I'm, when I'm explaining, I often draw the three little sort of, um, uh, uh, little curves of to demonstrate how they overlap um the three little the red blue and of, yeah. sort of wavelength and frequencies and that often because then you can start to see how you're not you know you're not blind to reds there's a bit of the sort of the green cone that tails off into those frequencies at uh, those mm -hmm. wavelengths i should say so you can sort of see the difference and um, there's some interesting things there. I, I don't i've never noticed a problem with blues and pinks actually these you mentioned there but i do have terrible trouble with yellows and greens yeah um sometimes the bright green I just do not, and yellow, I cannot pick them apart at all. But it doesn't, actually, that doesn't crop up too often in my daily life that I've noticed a problem. Um, you were a footballer. Well, yes, that's interesting because <laughs> yeah. I was going to come on to talk about football because I just, yeah. I, I was looking at the website and found that amazing resource from the um, um, UEFA or the FA all about that huge document actually addressing yeah. it. And I know you've been involved in that, I think. Yeah. So I was going to come back to that. But yeah, that's probably when I have noticed it, that when you, I, I can't tell, <laughs> I, I, I sometimes, and, my, and now I've got children, they're pointing out my errors to me all the time, <laughs> um, yeah. which is quite oh. handy. And so I'm a standing joke in that regard in the family about kind of yellows and greens. Um, I've, and that's probably why I've noticed it more about just that things like bright green or bright yellow icing on cakes and stuff that I can't tell apart. Um, I have also noticed that um, there is no such thing as purple. You know, it just doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> and I, I, ref I refuse to accept the existence of purple. It's yeah, just a, it's just a funny off blue. It's got a hashtag. It's called Blurple. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't come across that. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I don't think anyone who's colourblind can tell the difference between blue and purple. Yeah, no, it's except an absolute that calm. purple might be darker. Yes, that's it. it. Sometimes darker, that's what I think. That's a it's a slightly odd blue. It doesn't quite look right. Mm. I can't distinguish why. I just know it doesn't look quite right sometimes for a blue. But I have bought many items of purple clothing in the past, completely oblivious um, to it. Yeah, not on your own. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I should ask, we, one of the things we should move on to is it's, it's all, you know, a lot of people, we might think, wow, it's just one of those little strange little wrinkles, only happens to a tiny number of people. We should tell folk about how many people are affected and in what sort of ways their life can be affected. Well, millions is the answer. Even in the UK, there's about three million colorblind people. Um, because it affects men, um, the way it's inherited on the X chromosome means that men are much more likely to be colorblind than women. I think most people are aware of that, but maybe not the numbers that it's 8% of men. So, mm. uh, you know, uh, we have a hashtag one in every classroom is at least one child in every classroom. Um, you know, it's one in every football team or, you know, more, most sporting teams that are male only. Um, so huge numbers of people, and um, uh, worldwide, we're talking over three hundred million people. Yeah, it's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. I like, I like. Yeah. I think the one in every classroom. You're underselling yourself slightly, um, aren't you? Because it probably is more like one in every. You know, there's a good chance it's one in every team. 
Um, yes. It's actually, and the, the, one of the things I've written about in the past is the effect of the cricket ball. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a particularly yeah. obvious one. The football, it does affect us, but the red ball and a green background in cricket has always been a bit mm -hmm. of a disaster. And there have been some studies looking at that as well, haven't there? Yeah, I mean, the, the cricket really brought things to a head by introducing a pink ball for night day tests, yeah. which uh, I was pretty annoyed about because that they knowingly brought that in. Yeah, knowing that their colourblind players wouldn't be able to see it very easily, and then dropping them from teams. Yeah. So that got quite controversial quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, have they? So have you? Have you been pushing at them, Catherine? Have they? Have they responded at all? Uh, I've had meetings with them, but I apparently don't have enough money to do the research. The research being done. The, uh, the, there's research already there. I've certainly reported on it in the past that the um, colourblind cricketers are underrepresented in the highest echelons yeah. of the game. Yeah, that is specifically on that pink ball. Oh, okay. Um, it's really, really controversial. Interesting. Um, you don't really need research to know it's pink. Um, uh, no, it's it's that they don't, because most people don't understand about colourblindness. They don't understand why it's a problem. And because the main, uh, the players will say, well, you know, sometimes it's okay because they don't want to be dropped. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, so it really needs research on retired cricketers who are colourblind and who have the screen to work out what type and severity of colourblindness they've got. I mean, they need the technical research to be done. Um, and it was all set up to be done. And then they said, oh, we haven't got any money, so we're not doing it. Gosh. So, yeah, I think that story's yet to keep, and uh, it's not got to the end of the line because oh, well. it's potentially affecting careers. Yeah, yeah I'd be, we, we, should, we should talk more about that as well i certainly would be happy to be involved in any kicking Good. <laughs> and pushing <laughs> in that regard um so there's the whole cricket thing and that kind of um yeah. say so one in every team is an interesting yeah. kind of thing but the only thing i would say about the cricket is i i, I think he and both of them is supposed to be colorblind isn't he so it doesn't yes, always is, yeah. yeah it doesn't always affect the um the most able of cricketers <laughs> um no no you're right and it's in the circumstances so um as the light fading gets worse, um, they, uh, if you speak to cricketers, they, they will tend to say they can see the ball moving. It's the, spe the, the speed of it they can see against certain backgrounds. It's when it lands on the floor and they're supposed to pick it up and yeah. throw it back. <laughs> if yeah. they're fielding, they have more problems with it than they do as a bowler or a batter. Yeah. Well, especially in the highest levels, because as a batter, you've got a sight screen anyway. And bowling, you just don't need that side of things. Interesting, I used to play a bit of cricket and I was quite a, I was a rubbish batsman and a rubbish bowler, but I was quite a canny fielder. Yeah, that's <laughs> Which, good. Wait, but um, what I think one of the things I probably would be better at though is actually I was better in close because as soon as it was a distance away, there was more chance of the ball disappearing into the brownie greeny background. Yeah. Um, at sort of eye level. And then I was in trouble. Um, but when it was relatively close, it, it, that often didn't happen and you could pick up the movement. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what the players do tend to say. So yeah. I don't know. I've never played cricket, um, but it's difficult because you're not going to get the red ball removed. It's yes, know, it's fundamental to the game, and people like Botham will say, "Well, you know, you can stop me." But what we don't <laughs> know is how severe his colour blindness is. No, start, you know. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done in cricket. But what I would say is, it seems to be that protonopes have more problem with the pink ball than deuteronopes do yeah I, d I hate watching sport with a pink ball and they introduced it into football a little while ago as well that there was i think it was a champions league ball had an element of pinkness to it um it might i might be right i might even be in the world cup 
and uh, to the extent that I couldn't watch the games, that I just it was, yeah, I I, lo- I kept losing the ball, which is that was gone. No, yeah. So I'm not sure which. Uh, do you remember which which tournament or game it was? I know what it was. Yeah, it was the FA Cup ball. Ah, yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that was interesting because that got that was what got us into football in many ways. Because I wrote to um the chairman at the time, Greg Dyke, and said, "Now listen." <laughs> You should know all about colour blindness because you used to run the BBC. Um, you yes. can't do this, and uh, they did. They did very quickly get onto that um, and redesign the ball. It normally takes them two years to do a new ball redesign, and they did one in about six months. So they got rid of quite a lot of paint of the next iteration, but it's oh. not. You know, nowadays you're not going to get 100 percent perfect football because of the sponsor issues that are attached to them. Um, they need they need a different type of ball for every match almost you know if they could get away with it they would so yeah. that they could sell yes. sell more versions um, and I was a bit concerned actually about the Champions League ball for the finals this year because it's mainly red with white panels oh. but it um, and we did quite a bit of research on it and it works on television but a lot of the players who are colourblind there aren't many players who are colourblind that speak out, but the ones who we know of that we've got access to said, uh, it's okay to watch, but I wouldn't like to play with it. But there we are. <laughs> they're still using it. Yeah, and it's because, I mean, all these things about sport, are, you know, they're, they're just such fine margins. You know, they, when you're mm. kicking a football at high velocity or it's coming at your speed, even the tiniest of miscalculations, you know, they're, they're not going to be necessarily instantly obvious. But they they're going to have a cumulative effect. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's there's so much work to be done on all sport to do with colour blindness and the implications and yeah. how you can get marginal gains by doing certain things. Um, and no sport's probably taken this on board yet. I have to say, even with all the work we're doing in football, it's still got a long way to go on that on that score. So, um, there's football and cricket. Are there any other sports there? that have got similar problems I might have missed, not thought about? Well, any team sport that plays with different coloured team shirts. Okay, so the kit issue, yeah. There's a kit issue. That came up massively in America about four years ago in the NFL, where there was something called a colour rush competition that was introduced. And the very first match uh, or game was uh, all red against all green. So within (laughs) a week, the NFL had had to say right okay we'll never ever again in the future do a colorblind kit clash don't you worry about it because there was so much controversy about it um <laughs> comes up in hockey yeah, um of course you know for spectators more than anything um the women's hockey final which england won in the last olympics was against the netherlands and that was red against black which is a protonate you know would be a bad kit clash for you yeah. So people couldn't tell those teams apart who were spectating. Yeah, um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and then it's the equipment. You know, um, sports you wouldn't necessarily necessarily think about, like canoeing okay. um, or kayaking. If you were to do that at high level, you wouldn't be able to tell necessarily whether you were supposed to be going forwards through a gate or reversing, mm. or going backwards through a gate because that's controlled by different colours. Um, sailing. That can be a problem, you know, anything. (laughs) Yeah, Sailing, we can come on to a little bit, maybe talking about briefly about careers and things, but sailing falls into that category that, you know, they're particularly just the, the, obviously the use of red green as the standard colours of port and starboard, starboard and port. 
yes um is just a disaster yep yeah I, I know they use sort of different shape boys and other things as well. But, you know, obviously, for, you know, as you say, something like sport, when you're at speed, you've got very little chance. If you can't do that in, more or less instinctively, you've yeah. got no hope. I agree with you. Yeah. And I don't think there's been any research done into that at all. You can buy a new boat, a motorboat, and you can go straight onto the sea and be colorblind and not know anything about any, any navigation, <laughs> never mind whether you're colorblind or not and you're you're allowed to be loose on the high seas so i think we've got a long way to go before they'll start looking at the the colorblindness implications but from um uh i suppose commercial um sailing angle uh merchant seamen or anything to do with the navy you definitely won't get through if you're colorblind no no i mean that I think I think that's probably think of just digressing into the career thing. Where people often talk, well, you can't be a pilot. That's the thing that I got told when I was little. Um, but actually, probably more significantly, because actually anything like any career, maritime-based career, is probably you've had it as well. Yeah, uh, most of the military you can't do. Uh, what happens quite often is that people leave school and decide they want to go into uh, the army, say. And they will put them through their paces and they can get right the way to the very end. And the only thing they've got left to do is pass the medical. And at that point, they'll find out that they're colorblind and it can completely shatter their dreams, something they've looked forward to for many a long year. But then what they get is, well, you can't do what you want to do, but you could still be in the army or wherever. Um, but we'll let you be a chef. Mm. And I find that scary in itself because, um, you can be a chef and be colorblind and potentially poison an entire battalion <laughs> because you can't tell if the chicken's cooked properly. So you, uh, there need to be proper procedures in place to ensure that colorblind chefs are not going to do that kind of thing. Um, but also even something as simple as chopping boards, um, they're all color coded. So you don't put raw meat on the same board as somewhere that you've just been chopping up some salad, for example. Um, but if you're colorblind, you don't necessarily know which board you're using. So I would love to know what the procedures are in place to ensure that that sort of incident can't happen. Yeah. So um, I should have a, I should confess something first that I was in the army actually as a doctor. Oh, wow. So um, but, ah, and I okay. was and I was CP four, which is color proficiency four, which means can't pass CP three. So they knew I was colorblind, um, but doesn't. But, you know, didn't didn't stop me being in the army in that regard. But I was trying to remember at what stage they actually tested me and whether I think you're right that I was quite a way along the track. I would have thought they did it because the medical examination is called the Pulleams, and I think it still is. Um, at what point they do that? But as you say, it's devastating to get all the way through, to get you know a long way through and only find out later. It's all an argument for it's all an argument for f- trying to ensure people find out early, isn't it? Exactly. And that's one of the fights I've got at the moment is with school screening. Yeah. Because uh, that was phased out in 2009 off the back of some, or something called the Hall Report, which was done by the Department of Health. Um, and I think, I, mean, I don't know, but my reading of it was it was to save some, save a few quid. So it was, what can we basically get away with no longer putting into the Healthy Child Screening Programme? And they relied on a study of people born in 1958. Uh, so it was the 1958 cohort who knew they were colorblind or not all the way through school. And they looked at how many O levels and A levels they got when they came out of school. 
and concluded that colorblindness, quote, conferred no educational disadvantage because they said, well, the colorblind children are getting GC, uh, well, O levels and A levels in the same proportions as children with normal color vision, and they're going on to do the careers that they want to do. And nobody in 2009 seems to have said, well, hang on a minute, when those kids were in school, everything was in black and white, <laughs> didn't even have the internet. But if you write to a minister now complaining about colorblind issues, as you can imagine I do quite often, that always gets quoted back. That same piece of evidence stroke research confers no educational disadvantage, um, which is obviously complete rubbish. And I, I already have seen this year an, an inset from um, an exam paper, an AS paper on geography, which is not colorblind friendly. So then, and that's five marks of that paper that a colorblind candidate potentially could miss. So I'm fighting really hard to get color vision screening reintroduced at school entry so that at least those children can apply for access arrangements for exams and know what careers they may struggle with. I'm not saying that they shouldn't try and go for it, mm. but um, that they might struggle with um, well in advance of leaving school or taking their options even. It's a big fight. <laughs> Absolutely. And to say about the career thing is it, you're not necessarily excluded. You can just at least you're in a position to get yourself more formally and assessed in detail to find out what your abilities or disabilities are. Yes. Um, without that, without being, I'm, I'm, I, what I was looking for, and I've always wondered, and I haven't found any good evidence for this, and I've seen it in sort of studies in bits and pieces. Do you have you any sense, or do you know any research which shows what percentage of men and women, because it does affect women as well, though obviously mm -hmm. much less frequently, are actually colorblind? Don't sorry, don't know they're colorblind. Uh, well, what I can tell you is, no, is, is is the formal answer to that in terms of formal scientific papers, because there's hardly any research on colour blindness, yeah. but there's hardly anything. Um, but we do studies of children when we go in and we're asked to screen in schools. Um, we've got sort of an informal study running, but it's it's interesting because it goes across different socioeconomic groups, different types of schools, different areas of the country, and it's consistently showing that by the time children hit year seven, which is the first year of secondary school normally, 80% um, of children have not had a colour vision test. And 75% uh, of them have had an NHS eye test with an optometrist. So what it's showing is that optometrists are not screening as well as schools not screening. And therefore unlikely that when they come out at the end of school, that they will be still be well, they are still likely to remain undiagnosed because the chances of the optometrist picking it up yeah. between them starting secondary school and finishing is unlikely. Well, that's really interesting. I, I'm really interested the optometrists aren't looking at it either. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one of the really, there's obviously huge gaps in the research here. And I suspect, because I, I, I looked at this, I've looked at this over the years and I suspect I've got most of the papers in my little yeah. library on, that do exist. And there are, there's really a very modest number. But yeah. I was just looking just before we spoke today about some of the more recent papers that have come out. And there's some interesting papers emerging about the use of smartphones and online technologies, as you said at the very beginning, that they were just starting to appear to test mm -hmm. people. And they would seem they might meet some of the criteria for being good screening tests to at least start picking up. So the, the cost implications could be ex extraordinarily low. Well, yeah, I mean, health visitors, not health visitors, um, school nurses already go in and do eye tests. Yeah. Um, so I've 
I did an article with the British journalist School Nursing a couple of years ago, and the school nurses were saying, well, why have they taken it away? We're actually going into school. It takes a minute yeah. to do a colour vision test, two minutes tops. Why, why can't we just do it? Yeah. And then the schools would be able to support those children from day one instead of not knowing about them all the way through school. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think I was relatively easy to pick up, probably because I was protonopic, so it was fairly um, profound. Um, I was just looking at my results, actually, on the colour assessment and diagnosis test. And my apparently I'm over 18 times the normal threshold for red green. <laughs> so I'm really? I'm really rubbish um, <laughs> on that side of things. So I'm very much protonopic. And so I was, you know, I was merrily painting pink elephants and purple skies, which mm-hmm. is was my kind of how I got picked up, I think, when I was very little. Even but I'm old enough that I would have been screened anyway. Yeah. Um, so I got picked up. Um what other, so one of the things I say, what, there's obviously this sort of the disadvantage at school potentially and examinations and other things. And there are some other careers that we should mention. We mentioned the maritime thing is a big thing. Um, army possibly. Um, flying could be a factor, can't it? Anything else spring to mind that's kind of, you know, potentially a big disadvantage for people who have got color vision deficiency? Uh, you can't go into the fire service at the moment, mm-hmm. but you can be a paramedic and you can be a police officer because there's been there was uh, legal cases brought about that um but there's quite controversial problem going on at the moment where they're saying that every police officer should be issued with the taser but that then um, precludes colorblind people because they're saying um it's all technical to do with the way that the taser works and has a, a red light that shines on the person who's about to be tasered and whether or not people who are colorblind can see it. Uh, it's a bit of a red herring, if you excuse the pun, to, as far as I can see, because um, it could mean that potentially all colorblind police officers lose their jobs if that goes through. So you can imagine they're all going up in arms about it. But technically, you can be a police officer at the moment. Um, medicine, I would say, yes. we've had quite a lot of issues with. Um you know, you would say, I can't see a rash without somebody else telling me whether it's there or not, yeah. um, I would imagine. Um, there are quite a few issues with histology, slides and that kind of thing. Anesthetists, look, a lot of their stuff's colour-coded. So I pick up bits of information to do with medicine. And I think I know that lots of people who are colourblind are doctors or in medicine in some way, but it must have its challenges. I don't have the experience of that. So what I would say is, yeah, I should answer that, obviously, mm. um, <laughs> or I should address it. There's been quite a few studies which have looked at this, and I think by um, Spalding, who's wrote about yeah. this a lot over the years. Yeah. And gosh, yeah, there are clearly some challenges. I, actually, I don't have difficulty seeing rashes for some reason, even though I'm protonopic and quite badly so. I don't seem to struggle with red rashes. And I think there's enough of a contrast with the white skin that I pick up the contrast in it. It still looks reddish to me. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That hasn't been a personal problem, but I know that that has been identified as a potential issue for people who've got, who are colorblind to some degree. Um, I sometimes wonder when I'm looking in the backs of throats and in ears whether I'm seeing the redness. But I think there are other cues you pick up um, that make me realize that I am, and I seem to have had a reasonable success rate. Though Some of the evidence that was done, there were some studies done by Spalding which suggested that actually we're not as good as we think we are. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> I didn't dare say that. Yeah, no, no. So I'm, all, you've all, I'm quite prepared to be, you know, that, that's the bit of that recognition that it's the Dunning-Kruger effect that people don't when you're incompetent and you overestimate your own abilities. The um, 
the other thing is urine dipsticks. Goodness me, they're oh. a nightmare. Yeah. If you position them carefully, I can see the tonal differences. I've just got to position them carefully and not rely on the colours. If I'm at all unsure, particularly seeing pinkness, because there's one particularly for a nitrite on a urine dipstick that you rely entirely on seeing the level of pinkness that it changes to. Um, oh. I will sometimes, I have to, I sometimes will ask patients or a colleague. Um, there are bits and pieces. I, re I realized very quickly when I was in medical school that I was never going to be a pathologist because of yeah. the histology element. Mm -hmm. um, and I think actually I would have struggled with surgery, even yeah. differentiating yeah. in the sort of in a body cavity when you, in, in a surgical field with the different, you know, the colors are quite important cues to work out which, what, what organs are which. Um, I'm glad you said that because I've always said to myself, I'm never having a colorblind blind surgeon operate on me. <laughs> now I know about it, but I, that's just me um, being ultra cautious and not having anything to base it on except. Yeah. It would Nothing. be very difficult to know because I think in the real world, I think all these sort of things I've described there, I think, you know, like as a GP looking in ears and nose and throats or looking at rashes, there are almost always other cues that you can use oh. as well. And whether or not they compensate sufficiently or the differences then are so marginal that it doesn't have a real world effect, it's difficult to know. Some of the evidence would suggest it does have an, an effect, but goodness, I think it's, if you don't know you're colorblind, if you know you're colorblind, you've got more chances, it all yeah. goes back to the not knowing as well. Yeah, yeah. I have a colleague here who I've known for years in a uh, previous career, and he always used to say, uh, it's never, I'm quite severely colorblind, it's never caused me any problems. Yeah. And like, he now lets me quote him because he is doing work with me now, and uh, he'll do reports, and I'll say, oh, no, it's not that color. And he's like, oh, okay. Or he'll, he'll have missed something that I can see. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I've in a way, taken a bit of his confidence away, which I feel bad about because he's now realizing that possibly things he did in the past or he's, you know, that happen every day that he thinks he's okay about, but doesn't realize that he's missed something. I think that's right. It's just the unknown unknowns. You just don't know mm. you're not competent. And that's mm. a real problem. Um, mm. It's a real challenge. And if you, as you, the work you're doing, you know, highlighting these issues, uh, I, it is, um, it's important though, because if you're making mistakes and you don't know you're making mistakes, that's the worst case scenario. And as a doctor, that's just the kind of thing that, you know, could horrify me, would always horrify me <laughs> yeah. in that regard. Um, one of the things I would mention is that just that, as well as kind of the professions, uh, one of the things as a doctor you have to be able to do is sometimes be able to spot blood in bloody body fluids. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, there's a, there, was a, there was definitely a study on this which looked at picking up, you know, your ability to pick up blood in different body fluids and found out we were rubbish at it as a general kind of in the, from the colorblind perspective. Yeah. But that affects everybody who's colorblind. And there yeah. was one study I know that was done just down the road from me in Preston, which looked at bladder cancer and colorblindness, which showed that people who were colorblind were more likely to present with later stage bladder cancer. Yeah. And there's the, the speculation, the hypothesis being that you're not very good at seeing blood in your urine, so you don't pick up the fact that you've got mm -hmm. a problem until much later on. Um, yeah. So that's a kind of like an awareness thing that I don't think is being picked up at all. I, there, no. One thing I thought was really interesting about this, and I did try to, I spoke to my other job at the, um, with the Royal College of GPs, as I spoke to one of the leading primary care researchers into um, colon cancer and screening mm -hmm. and flagged that I thought there was a real potential problem with men, obviously being men being most common, but people who are colorblind, um, not been able to notice that they've got blood in their poo. Yeah. And so missing one of the most important cues of potential bowel cancer mm -hmm. that got summarily, summarily dismissed in terms of being regarded as a topic of interest. 
Oh, for goodness sake. Yeah. I, I've tried to raise that a few times, you know, over social media with various charities or whatever, when they've had a day, you know, bowel cancer awareness week or whatever. I always, always do something about that and nobody ever responds. Yeah. The interesting thing is it got, it's been, my argument was we should have screening, therefore, for people who are colorblind. Actually, that's been slightly superseded by the fact there is now a national screening program in the UK. So, in fact, actually, the, most people are going to get swept up in that anyway. But it would be, I think it would be, there is an argument that it's particularly important that people who are colorblind know that actually doing the screening program or possibly even doing it from an earlier age would meet the useful threshold that kind of, of the screening program. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. But as, you know, as the generations go by or the years go by, less and less people are going to know they're colorblind. So already we've got a whole generation almost of people who are colorblind not being diagnosed. Mm. So my son, my son, we found out by accident. I don't know because he's so good at hiding it. Even though he's severely colorblind, I still have my doubts that had that one incident not happened, we would still not know. And, and I quite often have meetings with people even who went through that generation, um, my age group, where we were all screened at school, who who will realise in a meeting that I'm having with their team that they're not seeing colours the same way as everyone else and they're colourblind. So but all the way through, there are going to be people who don't know they're colourblind. So they're still an extra risk and I don't know what you do about those. But then this my son's generation, where we know that children are not being screened, they're not going to be able to be identified because they were never screened at school, so they don't know. And, and it's worse than that in some ways, because even though that generation of ours that was screened, that's not documented anywhere. It's it's not on their medical record. Because if it was, and it was read-coded, there would be incredible potential to determine whether or not what impact it has on health, if any. Um, and um, there's no way of doing that. You've got to kind of do it all retrospectively in terms of find, which is extraordinarily difficult to do. It's extraordinarily difficult to get the numbers that are big enough. So, I mean, if anything, if we're going to have a screening campaign with kids, we also need to make sure it gets coded on the computer system so that actually then, in then 10, 20 years' time, we could do the most amazing studies um, to determine what effect color vision deficiency really does have. Oh, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. It would just be so amazing. But... <laughs> Try get a politician to even talk to you about colour blindness, to even have that conversation is impossible. Impossible. And it's such a waste. And it's wasting NHS resources by not putting it in, into effect now. But how you actually get anyone to take that seriously, I don't know. Maybe that's your new mission. <laughs> well, don't tell me. I've got, I'm, 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 to be honest, I'm gathering missions like slightly at a ridiculous rate at the moment. But. Um, one thing I should ask is that I've been I've been oscillating here between colorblind and color vision deficiency, and I know that this was something you wrestled with and came to the yeah. conclusion that you were going to call it colorblind. But I wondered if you could just talk us through that for a minute. Well, I know that people who don't see color, uh, oh, well, particularly those with red green color blindness, are not blind to color. Um, I know uh, most people won't, won't know this, and I haven't actually said it so far in the conversation, but blues and yellows stand out really well for people who are colorblind. So um, a lot of the advice that we're giving for uh, stadium safety, for example, with the world, what we're doing in football is to highlight fire exit signs in yellow because we know that color stands out to somebody who's colorblind. Um, but therefore, so therefore they're, Colorblind people are not blind to color, um, and it's a useful cue for people who are colorblind. Some colors are. Um, color vision deficiency is a technical term because 
colorblind people are deficient in their ability to see color normally. Um, but most people don't know what that means. So if mm. I was to try and raise awareness as an organization for people with color vision deficiency, I know nobody would engage with me because I tried it. Um, <laughs> but everyone knows someone who's colorblind. They all have a funny little joke they can tell about what that poor person did. <laughs> At some point, you know, they're, they're keen to tell you about it because it's a story they know and they think they understand colorblindness. So it's an opportunity to engage. Um, it's the, it, the reason that we use colorblindness as, uh, within the title of, the, of our organization. It just, we know that people know what that means. Yeah, I think it's hard enough when you're raising awareness and people are not in- engaging. If you don't, if they don't even know what the condition is to start mm. with, you're, 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 you know, you'd like to think at some point in the future it might become possible to transition to that kind of color vision deficiency. But at the moment, you're you're just creating an almost impossible hurdle to get over, aren't you? Yes, and we asked we asked a focus group of colorblind people, what, how would you like to be described? And they basically said the same thing. Um, you know, we know we're not blind to color. Some people even said when they got the diagnosis, they thought they were going to go blind, which is quite scary to think of a young child thinking they might go blind and it's nothing like that at all. Um, So it is still open to misinterpretation. But overall, they said people know what I'm talking about if I say I'm colorblind and they don't if I say color vision deficiency or even CVD, which in medical terms, um, that's cardiovascular disease. So that's also (laughs) confusing, but I tend to use... All three, if I'm doing a report or whatever, I'll say color blindness brackets, color vision deficiency, you know, CVD, um, because all of those different terms are used. We, I was going to mention just a little bit about football again, because we, we touched on it, but there is this incredible report at the FA's website, isn't there? That was, yes. quite, you know, like 70, 80 pages, I think, of information I know, I, about color blindness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, yeah. fantastic. It's amazing. Um, it's really, I, know, I, haven't, I didn't know it existed to my shame. Um, until I was um, browsing through the website earlier this week. And um, it's fantastic. So I kind of, you know, you're to be congratulated. And the interesting thing about that is I look at all the pictures and I can't tell them apart at all. They look like there's two pictures of the same <laughs> Good. thing. They were to- heavily chosen. Yeah. I'm glad you've said that. So I was a bit like, yeah. oh, I'm not sure I'm missing the point here because I am colorblind or whether, what impact it has on someone who's got normal color vision. Um, but there's some great stuff there. Um, I, 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 I would love them. There are so many games I've tried to watch on the telly, which I've had to abandon because oh. of the red green thing. Or it's just I'm like I can't do anything with these teams. It's hopeless. And their obsession with changing the kits every year, obviously, yeah. is a massive problem. And then the bizarre away kits they come up with um, is a yes. real challenge. Mm. Yeah, we're we're making some progress. Some progress. Um, so the Premier League now take it into account when they're deciding on kits for games um, but they are still constrained to a large extent by the fact that kits are agreed years in advance and signed off and the um, mm. deals with sponsors which have an effect um, but whenever they can they now tell teams to switch kits if it's possible to do that to try and avoid a kit clash but it still happened it's still happening in the Champions League it happened at the opening game of the World Cup this year um, yeah I can't remember what that was uh, I know Saudi Arabia and Russia. Yeah. Um, but we've now, as a result of of it, we're finding the players who are colorblind. So we're just hoping that mm. once a couple of those, we can get a current player to speak out. Um, I think that will be a game changer. Again, it's a pun yes. <laughs> that, I don't, that I don't want to use. But, you know, it will be because 
the world of football will then properly take notice where at the moment we're sort of dabbling around the edges and nobody's willing to properly confront the sponsors and affect yeah. it, you know all of that side of it is so touchy yeah, of course. um it, it will it will change over over the next five years i think there'll be a big change uh, actually getting kit regulations changed is very controversial yeah <laughs> but i'm yeah, not so giving that, up yeah no that's clear so there's two things i want to mention just at the very end the first thing is mm. i'd written down leds because you mentioned that i think perhaps mm. earlier yeah that's one of the things in my daily life that i have the biggest problem with is red yeah. and green leds so when an led yeah. goes from red to green or green to red you know, it's only two or three millimeters across. That is, I, I have got no chance with that. I can't tell when my Kindle's charged. There are all new, there are endless devices which use red and green, mm. and they often have quite significant safety elements. There's a safety yeah. element to those yeah. as well, yeah. um, which is quite a worry. So I just thought I'd flag that because you'd mentioned it just to, to point out to people that you just I, I rely on my children to tell me when to take things off charge nowadays. Yeah, yeah, I think. That's one of the biggest frustrations for colorblind people, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, it's right up there. But the other thing I just wanted to ask you about finally was about what you've had some success with the BBC, just to tell us very, you know, briefly about what you've been doing with Air and, you know, the kind of, the, I know that you've enjoyed some success in getting them to change. Well, it's a bit of a mixed bag with the BBC. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, we did, uh, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, there was a big problem with the election graphics that they mm -hmm. used um, and uh, they were not willing to make any changes whatsoever so I had to fight them right the way to the top and they were told by the trust to create some basically there were guidelines for on online information anything digital they had to be colorblind friendly um, but they didn't have anything um, for broadcast information so they were supposed to create some broadcast guidelines um, and they've yet to be seen I don't know where they are in the process. I've been cut out of that, um, so I don't know. But in theory, that's supposed to be rectified, and it isn't. And there are still problems that come up all the time with graphics that they use on the website. And uh, so, mm. yes, we did have some success, um, but not as much as I might have wanted. But then again, uh, a couple of weeks ago, they invited me on to BBC Breakfast to raise awareness about the issues in education. So, yeah. you know, that's fantastic. Can't say more. Uh, greater thanks for that yep. opportunity. Um, and sometimes they'll write quite long articles. So they did a big piece on that World Cup match and introduced it, the topic of football and, and sport and everything. Um, but it's a very, very diverse organisation. There's so many people with so many different interests that they want to cover. And what we're still really, really lacking is a documentary that actually explains to people uh, it's like a, a bigger version of the BBC, uh, BBC breakfast piece in a way, showing what it's like to live day to day with colour blindness so that people's families can understand what they're putting up with and instead of laughing at them, <laughs> might be yeah, a bit yeah. more sympathetic, and but also crucially for education and careers. Um, and businesses need to know more about what they're missing out on. Yeah, So much information that businesses put out that colour blind people just chuck straight in the bin. Yeah. You know, it's su such a waste of resource. Um, uh, so yeah. you could cover that. I could talk about it for weeks. I won't do that to you now. <laughs> no, <laughs> I well, could, because it's such a massive topic. It affects everything. Yeah, it is. It is astonishing. I've, and I've always known that, but I guess I've kind of have been guilty. I, I joke about it myself and everybody, there would be hardly a person here I work with at the university who doesn't know I'm colorblind because I always 
when something gets shown and I can't see it, I make a point of highlighting that I can't see it. Oh, good. <laughs> Keep it up. <laughs> um, so they would certainly know about it. But um, I perhaps have been guilty of minimising it as well at times and making a joke of it, which, uh, you know, and there, I, I guess the risk is that although I don't feel particularly stigmatised by it, a lot of people might feel stigmatised by it and they might feel very anxious about their jobs, whether, you know, yeah. The, yeah. The, and their employment and what their, what their employer is going to do to mm-hmm. them if they find yeah. out. Yeah, that's definitely a big issue for some people. Listen, Catherine, you're doing amazing work. Tell us where we can find out a little bit more about everything that you're doing um, and, and what's going on. Uh, well, the main source of information is our website, which is colorblindawareness.org. But we're also quite active on social media, mainly in twi- on Twitter. So the Twitter handle is at colorblindorg. And I have to say, I think that's possibly the best thing that I've created because it gives people who are colorblind an opportunity to talk to other people with the same issues. So you can all laugh at the same jokes from the same perspective of the person involved in the joke rather than the butt of the joke. And, you know, spread your own stories if you want to or ask questions of the community and I think that's been great to see how that's grown and how many people are sort of full-time members of that and fully active part of it and then other people dip in and out as and when it suits so that's at colorblind.org. That's absolutely fantastic we'll make sure we get uh, links to those up for sure so that people can find them without any difficulty. Catherine that's been absolutely wonderful thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blokeology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating that would be incredibly helpful and any feedback is very welcome and so you can leave comments send email or make contact via twitter facebook and the usual social media channels all of which can be found at blokeology.io thanks again mm-hmm.